I think it's fair to say that Buddhist practice concerns itself with cultivating and sustaining wholesome mind states. Buddhist practice, of course, uh, for us to understand it and leverage its fruits, warns us against being attached to, really, to any kind of attainment. Despite that, I think it's fair to say, and I think it's useful to say, that the practice does concern itself at a certain level with cultivating and sustaining wholesome mind states. Mind states that engender, I think, for many of us, shared goals, whatever they might be. Greater peace, greater calm, greater quiet, even if uh, you're someone who likes a really full life and maybe even being really busy and uh, loud in whatever ways loud shows up in, in, in your life, uh, that some part of you as a meditator probably want some inner quiet, inner stillness. Um, <clears throat> wholesome mind states would also be anything that supports the development of understanding, the development of insight is a word that we use a lot in the Western Theravada, Western insight, Western Vipassana tradition. And then anything that supports all of the heart qualities, uh, kindness, compassion, uh, joy is often categorically listed as a heart quality. And the reason for that is uh, the word in Pali is mudita for joy. And this is a unique and it's a unique marker in the development of our practice because it references a joy that we have for other people's well-being, other people's success, uh, other people being free of worry, other people being free of debt, other people uh, having some of the material things that they want or having achieved some spiritual goals that they want, whatever, whatever it might be. And it's an important marker because if we feel ensnared by our own suffering, if our mind and our body are really contracted and tight, there's, for obvious reasons, a lot of self-focus. We're trying to alleviate that self-suffering, if you will. And if we're in pain, it's hard to be, it's hard to really applaud someone else's well-being. And, I, and, and I've told stories about my own experience with this to the, to the community before. I remember <clears throat> learning about uh, mudita, sympathetic joy, and many years into my practice, realizing that I really had a, lot, a long way to go as a meditator because it was hard for me to experience mudita. And it just, it really, it really, exposed how much suffering had yet to be lifted uh, if another person's, if and when another person's well-being uh, created jealousy or anger or something like that, right? So there's a lot of ways to go. So, so joy is a heart practice. 
equanimity, having a stable, having a stable mind, a mind that can stay regulated uh, when we are met with adversity. And forgiveness, uh, talked about less often, but uh, there in the Buddhist teachings as a wholesome mind state and as a practice. And that's what I want to explore together as a group tonight, if you're open to a forgiveness practice. So a critical, a, a critical tenet to Buddhist psychology is the idea that mind states are like filters or glasses, and we're always seeing through a particular mind state, if you will, a particular lens or, or, or set of glasses. We experience the world according to the glasses we're wearing. And based on our perception of that world, we then employ certain actions, and there's a natural feedback loop. We're creating a harmonious, affectionate, hospitable world that we want to be in, that others want to be in with us, that excite us and stir optimism, enthusiasm, or we're playing a hand in creating a very different kind of world that is much, much harder to be in. And of course, this changes from day to day. It changes from life stage to life stage. But the underlying point is that we are responsible. And therefore, we also have a great capacity or power to change how we experience our own life. It's a core tenet of, of Buddhist philosophy, psychology, Buddhist practice. It's also easy to see, of course, in our own lives, if we're honest and if we're developing self-awareness, that we don't always live with a mind that is unperturbed. We don't always live with wholesome mind states. I would hope, if you did, you'd still come here, but my guess is that you wouldn't, right? And we all know that Life is complicated and we need support. <clears throat> and uh, for us who are here, there's a strong interest in exploring how meditation relates to and, and support, uh, probably for all of us, glasses that help us see in a way that really accommodates well-being, maybe even freedom from suffering. So the glasses we see through are not always bright and cheery. They're not always optimistic. They are not always conducive to preferred mental states like happiness, ease, trust. It's not uncommon to find ourselves viewing the world, others around us, in the situations we find ourselves in um, to be somehow uh, inhospitable in our way. And there is, when this happens, if we, again, if we look closely, if we're honest, there are increasingly subtle levels of blame. Have you noticed that? <laughs> right, I've noticed that. I've noticed that. On some level, it's easier, I think, or we think it's easier to externalize what is not uh, agreeable to us. 
Either we are incapable of meeting the world where it is, or the world is incapable of meeting us where we are somehow. This dilemma is at the center of what drives Buddhist practice. One of the reasons why we meditate is to calm an agitated mind, to stabilize the mind. And another reason we meditate is to investigate the mind so that we can understand how it became agitated in the first place. That's wisdom. So if, if you were to ask, what because it, because it, wisdom means different things to, to different people and to different traditions. When we use that term here, we're talking about a kind of insight or understanding that allows us to think and act in the world in a way that causes less suffering for us and for other people. That is wisdom, okay? Ultimately, we are trying to create a world view that is conducive to well-being and to arrive at and to abide in a world that is free of suffering. So, with that as a, a foundation, let's talk a little bit about relationships. Most of us would probably agree that relationships in our life are often the source of some kind of disturbance, emotional or mental disturbance. Any agreements? If it weren't for other people, we would be fine. <laughs> or so we think. We've, we may very well still suffer, in fact. <clears throat> However, there's nothing pessimistic about that. It's just, it's in my view, it's just really honest. It's just really honest. Relationships are often hard. Now, there are beautiful relationships, and relationships that we have in our life that we feel make our life easier. We feel safer. We feel seen. We, um, we feel supported. It feels uh, better to have a team or a crew or a significant other. Uh, you know, for example, at, at Against the Stream Boston, uh, you know, Adam and I kind of started, and we, we had a little bit of help from one person, and then, and then some other, and then Leah came in, all these, and, if, and like now, you know, I was on, I had a Skype meeting, Zoom meeting, whatever it was. <coughs> I Zoomed or Skyped yesterday, uh, you know, with a handful of people all helping to support the work and um, effort to sustain against the stream Boston so that we can... Uh, have a place and uh, more programming and more teachers can come and um, peer, more opportunity and space for peer facilitation. And, um, <clears throat> it doesn't mean those relationships don't get tricky sometimes, but they are all, for me, they're all in service of my well-being. They're all in service of the well-being of the community as I see it. They're all in service of the Dharma. And I couldn't do that on my own. Adam and I couldn't do that on my own. Last year we couldn't have done it without Jameson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And some of you know this from good, healthy partnerships at work and in your intimate life. Uh, some of you have the good fortune of having people you're close to in your family who, who fit this description. Uh, and we all have 
our own evidence of the reality of how difficult relationships can be, sometimes and often with the people closest to us. Relationships are complex, relationships are challenging, and relationships can trigger within us parts of our personality that are unresolved or attached to certain views or outcomes. Or simply, and I want to make sure there's a, a place for this in the argument that I'm building, or simply others can be unskillful enough in their interactions with us to harm us directly. So it's not all, I'm not saying all relationships are simply complicated and we are inherently always at fault for that to some extent. There are also occasions when people are really unskillful, really unwise, really unkind, uh, and do real harm. That's also uh, very, very real, right? By choosing any relationship, by choosing any relationship, we enter a territory where all of our needs will not get met. And a territory in which other people will be perceived as being responsible for that. One way of dealing with this is simply to end all of your relationships and keep getting new ones. <laughs> And eventually you'll learn that that doesn't work. <laughs> Short-term relief. So while meditation might feel like a solitary path and has that whole archetype built into it, uh, unless you're living in a cave somewhere, your uh, meditation journey is going to be a very relational one. And you might choose to spend a lot of time alone. And I've done that for over 20 years. A lot of time alone, a lot of time on retreat. Uh, a lot of time without relationships, uh, without intimate relationships, it's definitely some, with as few relationships as possible. Um, and what I've learned about myself is that there was a kind of hiding out in that, and there was a genuine, authentic, healthy part of me that is uh, driven toward a contemplative way of relating and seeking and understanding. And it's taken a long time to tease out uh, which percentage of what is playing out at any given time and to really allow and support the contemplative side but challenge the part that hides out. Right? So we have, to, we have to do that discernment on our own. We will have to bring what we learn into the relationship sphere of our lives and what happens in our relationships will invariably become part of our meditation because relationships invariably will affect the state of our mind and ultimately it's the nature of mind that we are investigating in relationship so if we follow that up to its logical conclusion you are amongst other things investigating your relationship to relationship during your meditation that's one of the things that will happen. In the Buddhist tradition, wholesome mind states, those are the ones you probably want, wholesome mind states increase in proportion to the development of wisdom 
and also through direct cultivation of certain qualities, such as kindness, compassion, and forgiveness through specific practices that we tend to group and call uh, generative practices or more broadly or generally heart practices, right? Which I mentioned at the beginning of our, of our talk. Forgiveness practice is important. Now, I haven't in recent past talked about this a lot uh, and we together, at least guided by me, maybe, maybe by another teacher, but I haven't guided uh, unforgiveness practice yet. Uh, so I want to be really clear up front that I do think that forgiveness practice is incredibly important and perhaps necessary simply because of the inherent challenge of relationships and how they can be a source of constant agitation. If we don't, if we don't have ways of working internally with what's happening externally in our lives and with others, difficult experiences can and probably will accumulate and we can become overwhelmed with anger, resentment, worse than that, a lack of safety and trust. And this can make it hard to maintain relationships, but also simply hard to feel at peace in our own mind and heart. We can <clears throat> get rid of relationships but if that relationship is to use, I don't know, a more clinical term, if those relationships are not processed, they can still be a source of suffering. I also have seen this in, in my own life. Um, two relationships, one relationship had to end in the past year. Uh, another relationship changed and is in a, a sort of mending process and with no contact with either person, <clears throat> the one who I've done metta for and done forgiveness for and uh, fully addressed my role uh, in, the, in the relationship and the ending of it, um, with that person there's no charge or energy, we might say. There's no lingering hostility. There's no regret. <clears throat> and there's another relationship with someone I was working closely with, who I love very much, and, and you know, so much of me loves and respects this person and, and really appreciates the years we spent close together. Um, but we got, in an, we got in a tangle. There are a lot of different views. I held and still hold the perception <coughs> that that person was, uh, had been unskillful at a level that was outside my uh, tolerable boundaries and so I said okay well, we'll just stop working together and I haven't gone through what for me would be an appropriate forgiveness process with and that person still there's still a charge sometimes it's getting smaller um, and so I'm looking at how can I because it's not about having another conversation with this that's not actually that's probably gonna make things worse <laughs> so I, I have to do, I have to, I, have to, I have to complete the project on my own, in a sense, and, and that's something I'm doing, and it will probably take some time, <clears throat> but forgiveness practice is a part of that. 
So for this reason, the Buddha recommended forgiveness practice as a way of freeing ourselves and others from the burdens of relationship and the burdens of living and working together communally. <coughs> the Buddha didn't say that we should get to a point where forgiveness is not necessary. The Buddha didn't advocate for a superhuman archetype where harm is not caused within relationship. Maybe that statement's not true if we include the arhat archetype. But as a general principle, if you, if you read the passage where the Buddha is talking to the monastics, um, there are times in there when he's acknowledging the basic truth that you are going to piss each other off and you're going to have to deal with it somehow. He was a realist. He really was very practical. <coughs> he actually advocated for something much more ordinary, simply that harm will be done, that it's inevitable, and that forgiveness is possible. So the weight given forgiveness may not only be due to its value during our life, but also when we die, and I won't get on that bandwagon tonight, I've talked uh, in detail both last week and the week before about death and dying and uh, sharing Buddhist perspectives and practices around that. <clears throat> but to just add in here that uh, forgiveness does in our tradition, in many, Eastern and otherwise, spiritual and otherwise, forgiveness does play a really uh, practical role in supporting uh, people at the end of their life, supporting, we hear the language, uh, a good death, right? <clears throat> what if after all our years of living, we died with confusion? I see this all the time. What if after all the years of our living, we died with resentments, unable to be at peace? <clears throat> what would that say about our life? What would that, how would that shape our transition from living to whatever is next? Depending on your cosmology, you might even wonder how your mental state at death affects where you go next and what kind of experiences you have there. That it's helpful, if not important, to rid the mind of regrets, resentments, and hostilities before the end of life is also demonstrated in the work of Dr. Ira Bach, who I'm sure many of you have heard of and maybe have read, whose book in re many related writings uh, and teachings include forgiveness as the cornerstone of his theory of the four things that matter the most. The four things that matter the most. designed by Dr. Bach as essential principles and tasks to do prior to dying in order to have a peaceful death, us as meditators might relate to Dr. Bach's model as instructions for practice not at all dissimilar to the instructions of the Buddha, to be done at any time in our life, perhaps regularly, to prepare for death and also to proactively and skillfully work with current and past challenges in order that we can be more free of the, um, the 
karmic pain that they can carry, that they can uh, have us entangled in. So, what are the four things that matter most? Anybody know this? Four things that matter most? Number one, please forgive me. Number two, I forgive you. Number three, thank you, which I find interesting and I like a lot. It, it, I'm, I'm hearing thank you as a koan. I'm not quite sure what he means, but some part of me likes it, and I feel like I want to grow into it. If I'm saying thank you to someone with whom there's been difficulty, what am I... Where, what, What's the gratitude for? You know, like really genuinely. I think this is a good question. And number four, I love you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And for those of you who have done heart practices, this is so similar to compassion phrases, equanimity phrases, very close to metta phrases. I would actually say that Dr. Bach's work is a combination of friendliness and forgiveness. So, to be genuinely open to these practices, and you can even now, as a meditator, you can, you can just pause and reflect on how you're hearing the words, how you're hearing the whole talk, and you can just see where you are. Interested, sound good, sound helpful, wish I was talking about something else tonight, you know what it, this is not for you or you know whatever it is you can just check in and you can see what, what, what's where are you no and no judgment it's just <coughs> judgment doesn't do us very uh, it, it doesn't help us develop self discernment and self-awareness so to be genuinely open to these practices is it's useful to see if there is some part of you that would one prefer resolution over confrontation. It's useful to see, in order to be open to this kind of practice, to see if there's some part of you that, number two, would prefer to open to complexity and conditionality, abandoning the need to prove you are right. It's useful to see if there's a part of you that, number three, prefers to connect over remaining separate, divided, or distant. And number four, prefer love and care over being afraid and defended. So overall, you would be interested in safety then at the highest level possible. Tanasaro Bhikkhu writes, the Pali word for for forgiveness, Pali is the language that the Buddha's original teachings were documented in. The Pali word for forgiveness, kama, with a K-H, K-H-A-M-A, kama, also means earth. I love this. It's just a strong image. A mind like the earth is non-reactive and unperturbed. When you forgive me for harming you, you decide not to retaliate, 
to seek no revenge. You don't have to like me. You simply unburden yourself of the weight of resentment and cut the cycle of retribution that would otherwise keep us ensnared in an ugly samsaric wrestling match. This is a gift you can give us both, totally on your own, without my having to know or understand what you've done. Not only is it poetic and beautiful, but it's, it's psychologically so smart and nuanced. It really gets to the heart of it. And points to this underlying reality that the Buddha wants us to experience directly regarding the power we have to change how we experience our own mind, how we experience our whole life, and how that will shape our experience of our environment, the way we see and perceive and interact with other people. Uh, we really, you know, when we come to practice in some way, often probably feeling pretty disempowered. And, and disempowered, you know, I feel disempowered in a way that's different than you and different than you, but we probably, some part of us is disempowered. And, uh, establishing some level of agency and control in our life, though, we're, again, we're always warned against non-attachment, but this practice is about establishing agency and control also to the degree, to the degree that we can. Of course, what we find out is, is, is acquiring agency uh, and control is not done the way it's done in other areas of our life. We have to unlearn so much and uh, almost come in the back door and, and discover an agency that doesn't look anything like we thought it would look like, and yet all the more powerful. And I'll, I'll leave you, before we move into some practice, with a short passage from the suttas, so this would be attributed to Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. These two are fools. Which two? The one who doesn't see their transgression as a transgression, and the one who doesn't rightfully pardon another who has convinced their transgression. These two are fools. These two are wise. Which two? The one who sees their transgression as a transgression and the one who rightfully pardons another who has confessed their transgression, these two are wise. Okay, so would you like to try and see how this plays out more experientially as a formal practice? Feel free to be as comfortable as you can. You can, you can even lay down if you want to go off to the side or behind the chairs. If, you, if there's not a chair and you want one, I think we have more chairs. But just uh, don't struggle with your physical body if you can help it. And as people move around the room a little bit, why don't you take a moment to close your eyes if you practice with your eyes closed. Or if your eyes are open, closing them partially, maybe tucking the chin a little bit so that your gaze is oriented toward the floor. And let's be quiet together for a minute. You might just begin to bring your attention to the body, or you might choose to 
follow the breath, noticing sensation in the body. Just connect with yourself and let the, let the teachings go, let the words go. You don't have to do any practice, you can just sit in the quiet. Being open to resolution to the degree that you can. Being open to complexity. Abandoning the need to be right. Acknowledging the part of you that prefers to connect over remaining separate, divided, or distant. And acknowledging the parts of you that prefer love and care over being afraid and defended. And I'd like to invite you to draw to mind a friend family member, a dear one, someone with whom there's, there is or has been closeness. There's been some difficulty, there's been confusion, misunderstanding. Your needs weren't met by this person at some point. They let you down or disappointed you. There was an argument, maybe quite heated, maybe, maybe really minor. The content perhaps appears mundane, but you can feel in your own nervous system and emotional body, physical body, that there's a charge. It's, the relationship or the particular events uh, are not clean in a way. You're not, you're actually, you're, let's just say it that way, you're not free. You're, you're not free in that relationship. You're not free in re relationship to the event that might come to mind as you scan your life and relationships for a person. with whom forgiveness might be helpful. <coughs> and again, it doesn't have to be a catastrophic life event. Any person, an occasion with whom a little more harmony, a little more freedom, a little more peace, a little more ease might be of benefit. And if you have this person in mind as a visual representation, that's okay. Uh, keep that visual there. 
and yet if it fades away, let it fade away. And if you don't have a visual image, that's also okay. It's not necessary to have one. You can just bring this person to heart, if you will, just have a memory of them. Just acknowledge at the outset of the practice that you are doing forgiveness uh, for and with them, if you will. And I'll recite the phrases, the four things that matter the most, and you can just hear them and let them wash over the mind and the body and heart and begin directing your attention to the phrases themselves. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Please forgive me. Imagining that you're directing this toward the person you've chosen. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Please forgive me for my actions, my missteps, my confusion, my not seeing clearly and acting appropriately. I forgive you. For not seeing clearly, for being unskillful, confused. Thank you. I love you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Letting the attention move toward the words and when possible, letting the attention move toward the feelings underneath the words. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you.
Please forgive me. I forgive you. Keeping in mind that this forgiving of another does not signal an approval of their behavior. Thank you. I love you. I love you. Noticing anything that is stirred up in the body, feelings, sensations, emotions. Does something in you calm, grow more easeful? Does something in you become agitated? And I want to encourage you to be really gentle and forgiving to all physical and mental states. These practices are not predictable and they may have benefits in ways that you don't foresee at the outset. And opposing feelings like frustration or agitation might very much be part of this practice. So be gentle, be curious. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And now taking these phrases and reciting them over internally, quietly to yourself and at a pace that works for you maybe faster than I was saying them, maybe much slower. Using them as an anchor to root and ground your attention in the present moment. In returning to the phrases at any moment that you see the distracted mind, having lost touch with the phrases, and you're thinking about the past or planning the future, See if you can just drop that mental activity and start right over at the beginning. Please forgive me. Coming back to that phrase, just like you come back to the breath or to the body. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you.
Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you.
if you feel disconnected or lost touch with the phrases just acknowledging that very simple just see that it happened and gently bringing the attention back recalling the person that you're working with starting right at the beginning please forgive me I forgive you thank you I love you practicing like this for just a couple more minutes 